Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and by the grace of God, I want to fire your faith this morning, or begin firing it, and we'll fire it some more next week, and we'll fire it some more the week after that, with the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter fits with the rest of the book of Hebrews and fits Paul's line of reasoning and argument as well as any of us could ever fit various methods for persuading men together. And this 11th chapter of Hebrews is designed to take up where he has left off in chapter 10 with a strong warning to set forth some positive examples to motivate us by competition to increase our faith and be better than we have been thus far, and to see if we can't match some great examples from the church of the Old Testament. Do you remember days in school where after studying and preparing and finally taking an examination, you'd be given your test score back? The first thing is you'd look at your absolute grade score. Maybe it was an 80. Maybe it was a 70. Maybe it was a 90 or a 100. The next thing you wanted to know was, how did the rest of the class score? Even if you have an 80 and the teacher scores on a curve, remember those days where you'd get an 80 and you'd feel so discouraged? Then the teacher would go to the board and write A. How many got an A? She'd say 75, 80 to 100, and there was only one that got an 80. And you were the only one in class that had an A because she curved it in your favor. And didn't that give you a great feeling? A sense of accomplishment. You had outperformed your peers. And then there were every nine weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, depending on your school year, there was posted in the library or on the principal's office door or in the hallway the rankings of all the students in the school. And that was an exciting list to see. If you were diligent. It is a fact of life that God created men competitive. And a man that's half a man and a woman that's half a woman will be competitive. The Bible is based on competitive nature of trying to do better. Paul likens the Christian walk to warfare. And believe me, warfare is competitive. You lose, you lose big. Winner takes all in warfare. But the Christian walk is like warfare. And the Christian walk is like an athletic competition. They all run in the race, but Paul said, how many win? One wins and gets the prize and the crown. The Bible is based on the fact that God's people will have a competitive spirit. Not simply to compare themselves among themselves and by themselves, but to strive for perfection and to be better than ever. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is designed to do by raising some examples from the Old Testament and provoking men to be better and women to be better. The great thing about Hebrews 11 and the subject of faith that is superior to studying for a calculus test and getting an 80 and being the only one in the class to get an A What's better about faith in Hebrews 11 is the fact that intelligence is not a factor. Sex is not a factor. 
on the athletic field. I mean, any man should be able to beat the performance of the girl athletes in high school. Sex is not a factor, so the women are not at a disadvantage with faith. Nationality is not a factor. I mean, in the book of Hebrews chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, we have Rahab mentioned, we have Sarah mentioned, and we have other women mentioned as women. Sex doesn't matter. Nationality doesn't matter. Rahab was a Canaanite. And she's mentioned. Position in society doesn't matter. Why, Rahab not only was a Canaanite and a woman, she was a prostitute. What kind of a position is that? Jephthah was a bastard, an illegitimate child. But he made it to Hebrews chapter 11. So position doesn't matter. And intelligence doesn't matter. Why, we have men here who lived in caves and didn't have much in the way of education or training. Nomads, farmers. This is a race. This is a warfare that we fight with faith. And sex, nationality, position, intelligence can be thrown out the window. Do you have faith in God? And that is not some difficult, deep, mysterious concept. Do you have strong confidence in God and what He said? You can be great. We have men that who by shooting a few steroids into their veins, sweating a few hours in a weight room, and by performing on an athletic field, can have their sweaty clothes hung up in Canton, Ohio, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, or in Cooperstown, Pennsylvania, in the Professional Baseball Hall of Fame. By a little natural gift from God, by a little sweat, by a little advantage over the competition, they're able to make it to the Hall of Fame. And Americans love their professional athletes. What great men. They sweat better than the others. They sweat longer than the others. And so they have their sweaty uniforms hanging up with their rotting shoes in the Professional Sports Hall of Fame. And this country worships that. Why, in just an hour or so, the great competition to the gospel is going to come over the airwaves. Sunday, NFL football. God doesn't have a Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, Pennsylvania, nor does He have one in Canton, Ohio. He's got a Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11, and the conditions, the necessary prerequisites or requirements to have your name entered there are not sweat, are not steroids, are not other advantage, are not a physical gift that simply deteriorates with age, it's faith. Strong confidence in God. And this morning, you men and you women, let's increase our faith as we look at the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Paul has been exhorting in this book of Hebrews for the Hebrews to hold fast their profession of faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. I want you to be reminded and to remember why the book of Hebrews was written in its overall general context. These are believing Israelites who are being tempted by persecution and by the fact that their former religion was God's religion to apostatize, to give up their faith in Christ and to go back to the old covenant. 
Paul's exhorting them, hold it fast. Hold it fast. In Hebrews 3, 6, Paul said that we are made, that we are a member of Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We are Christ's if we hold something fast, and that fast is our confidence. These Hebrew Christians had great confidence when they first heard the gospel, but Paul was afraid they were going to lose it. And sometimes I wonder how many of you will hold fast your confidence until God takes you out of this world where you'll no longer need confidence because God will give you all that you can stand. But how many of you will lose your confidence and go the way of most of God's children? Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul said, We are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast. Faith is confidence, strong trust, and belief in God and what He has said. Chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says, Let us hold fast our profession. Chapter 10 and verse 23, Let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. Paul, so far in the book of Hebrews, has compared the superiority of Christ. A lot of positive comparisons. Jesus Christ is better than. And he compares a number of things of the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. Prophets, angels, law, covenant, priests, Levi, and so forth. Sacrifices, blood. And Jesus is better than them all. Then Jesus, then Paul, in this book, makes some strong warnings. Hebrews chapter 2, how shall we escape? Chapter 6, it is impossible to be renewed to repentance. Hebrews chapter 10, there is no more sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. So there's been some strong warnings. There's been some bad examples given. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 set forth that generation in the wilderness who missed God's rest because they lacked faith. So we see then that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And unbelief is a lack of faith. So Paul's made positive comparisons. This is a very simple book. Hebrews is like a primer. Paul's made positive comparisons. He's made some strong warnings. And he's given some bad examples. Don't do like they did. Now he gives some positive examples. I mean, just think about if you had to write a book that was only a letter to someone that was only this long, how would you word it to totally convert them from God's religion to God's new reformed religion and to increase their faith in order to give their lives for it? You know, we see advertisements in the sales section of the paper where they're looking for, those, for closers. You know what the word closer means when it comes to sales? The man who can get the sale closed. I mean, this book in 13 chapters closes the sale. These people, after Paul gets done, are willing to give their lives for this product. It happens to be Jesus Christ in the Gospel of the New Testament. And how does he go about doing it? Well, right here he gives us some positive examples that ought to motivate us. You know, what motivates young men to give their lives and dedicate their lives, like Vinnie Testaverde a few couple of years ago, who dedicated his life since he was a young boy, I believe it was six years of age, where he first said he would win the Heisman Trophy. What causes young men to do that but the examples of other men who won the Heisman Trophy? Brethren, 
this book, this chapter, excuse me, this chapter of Hebrews 11 are those that received a great report card. You say, prove that. Look at verse 2. For by it, that is by faith, the elders obtained a good report. This chapter is a chapter of men who made the honor roll. And Paul is presenting them here to provoke us to faith like they had faith. In chapter 10, as we brought that chapter to a close, let's go back and read the last two verses. As Paul encouraged these Hebrews to not cast away their confidence, verse 35, to hold fast their profession, verse 23, and not to reject the knowledge of the truth that they had received. And he says this in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Paul here is telling you how you can meet the pleasure of Paul and the pleasure of God. It's not by drawing back and being a wimp, a quitter, a failure, a flunky, a dropout. Winners meet with Paul's pleasure and with God's pleasure. Verse 39, But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Faith is by what, what we are to live. Faith is the basis. It's the nature of the Christian's experience. And faith is not a difficult concept. It is strong confidence in God Himself and in what God has said. The just shall live by faith. Now, brethren, the just are justified by the faith of Christ, but fa the Christ's faith is about a million miles from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. That is your faith. That is your faith. Oh, yes, we're thankful for the faith of Jesus Christ and the faith of God that works our legal justification before God, but you make sure you get your faith in there when it comes down to pleasing God in this world. Christ's faith is going to do you no good unless you exercise your own faith. And faith is a fruit of the Spirit by which walking in the Spirit, you might walk and increase that gift God has given you. The limitation is in your mind. The limitation is in you. How many coaches have told their athletes that? How many coaches have told their football teams the beginning of a season the success you're going to achieve this year, young men, is dependent upon the degree and effort you put out to be winners. You have the talent. It's up to you. How many coaches have told athletes that, and God has given us the faith? We have the ability. We have the potential. But how many men will exercise faith to match up with this chapter? There's five billion human beings on this planet right now. How many billion have lived since, the hist since God created the heavens and the earth 6,000 years ago? 20 billion? 40 billion? Somewhere in there? Only a few. Listen, brethren, you want to talk about an elite group? The Heisman Trophy. One out of a few thousand college football players. You want to talk about an elite group? It's men who can match the faith of Hebrews chapter 11. That's elite. Out of five billion, you want to look at it, look at it statistically? Most of you that have calculators, if you were to take 20 
Man that occur in Hebrews chapter 11 and divide it by 5 billion, your calculators don't go out that many decimal places. This is an elite group. Do you want to be part of it? It is by faith to have God single you out of a number of generations of multiplied billions as that man and that woman are special in my sight and they have pleased me because of their faith. What is faith? Thank God for Hebrews 11 and verse 1. You don't need to go to a systematic theology. Paul's done it for us in this single verse. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. When we hope for something, we have a probable expectation of that thing. I'm talking about basic human hope. When we hope for something, you know, I'm hoping for a promotion. I'm hoping to get an A. We have, and some of you when you say that, it's a bare hope. Very bare, like absolutely naked. B-A-R-E. I hope I'm going to get an A. I hope to be able to do this next year, or I hope to get my basement finished by next week. We have a probable expectation of various things. Faith is that confidence that brings that probable hope, and the probability might be 40%, it might be 90. Faith makes that probable hope absolutely sure. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is that ingredient, that belief in God, trust in God, that makes things expected or probably expected real. Faith makes hope reality. Faith brings something we do not have yet to the present and teaches us or makes it as if that thing were already there and in existence. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Do you hope for eternal life? Some of you have come from groups where they always talk about, I have a hope of eternal life. Well, listen, if they had any faith, there wouldn't be any hope. It'd be a reality. Faith is reality. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the essence of the thing. If you have a hope of eternal life, that's nice. It's not very comforting, except if you use hope the way God uses it. But hope that doesn't have any faith, God never uses hope that way. Hope has to have faith in God. The hope of eternal life can be brought to the present tense and made real. You can have the substance of eternal life now by faith. It's a very simple concept. You believe so strongly in God and what He has promised that it's as if all of God's promises were already fulfilled. It is the substance, the essence, the very thing that you're hoping for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the essence. It's the real thing. Faith is the real thing. Faith makes expected things, brings them into reality. It's the substance. It's the very thing. A hope, you're just thinking about it. You have an expectation for it. You would like it. You have a desire for it. That's how we use the word hope. But all of those things that God has promised us in His Word that are yet future, we have we can have the reality of them if you believe in God strong, strongly enough. Look at Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we have a, the word hope used, but the word hope here, as we'll see from Hebrews, is based on the word faith. It's based on faith. Hope without faith is, well, I hope I get it. It's just a, it's just a probability. You, you, have no, you have no real basis for it, except your probability expectations. Maybe 40%, maybe 60, maybe 90. Romans chapter 8 and verse 23, speaking of the final coming of Jesus Christ and the rescuing of His children from bondage. Verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now the redemption of our body from the grave and our glorification in heaven is something that is yet future. All that we know about the resurrection of the body is what the Bible tells us about it. You've never seen a body resurrected. You've never touched a resurrected body. You don't know how it's accomplished. No scientific evidence is available for it. But we wait for it. Well, how can you wait for something you've never seen? It's never been proved. God just says He's going to do it. Well, by faith that works into hope. Look at verse 24. For we are saved by hope. That confidence that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead, which makes dying simply going to sleep in Jesus, our confidence in that fact is such that we are saved by it. We know we're going to be resurrected by our hope. It's what gives us confidence in this world while we're subject to bondage. We know we're going to be saved from all this mess. How do we know? By hope. We are saved by hope. I mean, if we didn't have the hope of the resurrection of the body, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we would be, of all men, the most miserable men on the face of this earth. Because we're denying ourselves in this world. If there's not a hope of eternal life, brethren, we've blown it. We ought to at least be living this life with all the gusto we can because we only go around once, as someone said in some deep religious statement in a Schlitz advertisement. Poor Joseph Schlitz. There'll be a day he wished he had hope. We are saved from the despair of death and a world filled with bondage and vanity by hope. And that hope is a strong confidence in what God has said that brings it into reality. For the apostle goes on to say in verse 24, but hope that is seen is not hope. If you could see eternal life, if you could see the resurrection of the body, there wouldn't be any hope required. Because what you see, you don't have to hope for. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? If you've got it in your hand and you're seeing it and you realize that you're in possession of it, what are you hoping for it for? You've already got it. Hope is for something you don't have yet, but that hope can bring it so close, make it so real, it's as if you already have it. Verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, and this is God's hope, then do we with patience wait for it. So sure, it's just a matter of time. Where is the coming of your God? All things have remained the same since the creation of the world. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us mockers would scoff at us in the last day. Just a matter of time. We're patiently waiting for it. It's just a matter of time. God is coming, and there will be a resurrection. 
Do you believe that? We haven't seen it. It's our hope. And faith, to the degree of faith you have, you know it. You all know about the vagaries of faith, don't you? Either sometimes you feel like you almost wish, maybe some of you have even prayed, God, make a blood clot and let it hit one of those coronary arteries and let me out of this place. I know I'd go straight to the presence of the Lord. Ever felt that way? Ever felt like, I better go take some vitamins because if I were to die today, I do not have much in the way of hope or faith that I'd meet with God. What makes the presence of Christ so real at times that we could actually look forward to death? Your faith is on the rise. Your faith has increased for some reason. And then because of sin and our faith is quenched, the Spirit of God is quenched, so you don't have that faith in you, that strong confidence in God, you lose some of your hope of the resurrection of the body and of God's mercy and of Christ's redemption, and you don't want to die. It's all dependent on faith. The man who's got faith laughs and mocks at death. Just like the apostles and many, many martyrs after the apostles would sing hymns while they're being stoned to death, asking forgiveness for those throwing the stones, as Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Now, that takes a lot of faith. His faith was so strong, he saw Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God. Faith is that confidence in God that moves us to behave, that moves us to action, as if all the invisible things in the Bible were visible and real. Not only is faith the substance of things hoped for, it is the evidence of things not seen. A very similar expression to the substance of things hoped for, but a little bit different. When you hope for a thing, faith is able to bring that thing right into reality in the present. That's the substance of things hoped for. It's also the evidence of things not seen. Now, this is a legal expression, evidence. In court, you bring evidence to prove a point to prove something true or false. Faith is able to take something that God has said and believe it so strongly and be so secure in what God has said, it's evidence for an unseen fact, an unseen statement. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now here is where we separate from the humanistic, perverted, weak, depraved minds of mortal men that have not faith. Wicked and unreasonable men. Oh, that, that's a good expression right there. Just as, I'm going to come back to that and somebody yell out if I don't. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this in verse 18. Now, I wanted to read a lengthy section of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but I'm going to leave it out from verse 8 down to verse 18. Paul's talking about all his troubles as a minister. He says in verse 8, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And he talks down through the next ten verses about the difficulties he faced as an apostle. You've never faced anything close to what Paul faced. But it didn't move Paul. It didn't move Paul because of verse 18. Let's get verse 17. For our light affliction. Now, I wish some of you, when things were going wrong, would go around and tell each other, 
Uh, it's nothing. Just a light affliction. Listen, none of you, if we were to take everyone in this congregation and multiply all of the troubles and afflictions we've had, none of them equal what Paul went through. And he called it a light affliction. If you'd go around talking about your light affliction, you'd cheer people up instead of destroying the congregation spirit. A light affliction, which is but for a moment. I mean, how long can it last? Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Far more exceeding is what's coming compared to the light affliction of this world. Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul didn't look at temporal affliction. I was stoned a few times, I mean, and left for dead. But that's not that bad. It's a light affliction. I was beat five times, whipped three times. I, yes, I was in the Mediterranean Sea in a storm, bouncing around like a cork. It was a light affliction. Yes, I've been in perils of robbers. Yeah, I have been without clothing, no food. And I've had to care about all these churches filled with babies. Yes, it's been tough, but it's a light affliction. Because I've got an exceeding and eternal weight of glory coming. And this verse tells us in verse 18, Paul saw it. He said he looked at it. Now, how do you look at eternal glory? By faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. How did Paul know he was going to get eternal glory and exceeding weight? And how did he know he was going to get a crown of life and a crown of rejoicing and a crown of righteousness in that day? How did Paul know all that? He saw it. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Paul could have gone into a court where God would have been judge and Paul could have proven his point. Paul could have proven he was going to get a crown and he had an eternal and exceeding weight of glory waiting for him. Because faith is the evidence of things not seen. It would stand up in a court where God was judge. Now, if you let a man be judge, faith isn't enough. Got to have science. Got to have science to prove your point. Science is ridiculous. Science deals with what you can see. Isn't that right? Those of you who are engineers, doesn't science require observable phenomena? What does observable phenomena mean? It means you can see it, right? That means anything that's based on science doesn't build faith. I mean, faith and science are opposites. Faith and science don't go hand in hand. Now, be careful what I'm saying. Science that confirms faith, great. Who needs it? Who needs it? Because science will never prove a point relative to what God's offered us. The, the promises God has made to us, God himself, let's start with the first. God himself, ever going to prove it by science? When are you going to ever observe God and pour some acid on him and see what happens to him, see what color it changes in a test tube? What are you going to do with God? You'll never see him. How do we know he's there? By faith. Can we prove he's there? Faith is the evidence of the existence of God. Second Corinthians 4.18, Paul said, we don't look at the things that are seen. What was Paul seeing? He was seeing a great big six foot four, 215 pound Roman soldier take a rod and beat his back to a jelly. He saw it. He said, I don't look at it. Paul had the Jewish elders take whips and beat him. 39 stripes, 40 save one, several times. 
Paul saw it, but he didn't look at it. Paul was in a storm at sea. The waves are ripping his boat around. He was in peril of death by drowning. What did Paul say? I didn't see it. I didn't look at it. He had all these churches. They were going into heresy. They were teaching circumcision for salvation. They were making a mess out of the Lord's Supper, denying the resurrection of the body, catering to fornicators. He said, I didn't look at it. He ignored all that. And we have something go wrong. Water heater goes out, hangnail, you know, on the third toe. Hangnail on the third toe when you get in a depression. Messes up your day. I'm having a bad day. What went wrong? I got stopped at two red lights in a row. I was a minute late to work. My wife didn't kiss me. Children got a B on their report card. Pitiful, isn't it? Your heavy afflictions. Your heavy afflictions. Paul said, I didn't look at any of it. I looked beyond it to things that you can't see with the natural eye, but you see by faith. And that is by what we live, if you're going to live. Now, you can live in despair by looking around. Listen, if we were to stop right now and look around, we could raise more problems. We could get so sad in here that we might want to pass out red Kool-Aid like Jim Jones did. If we look at the things that are seen. Isn't that right? If you sit and think about the things that are going wrong in your life, you're going to be discouraged. But you're to look beyond those things, and Paul did it, and none of you have things going wrong like Paul did. Look at chapter 5 and verse 7. Second Corinthians 5 and 7, Paul says this, For we walk by faith, not by sight. If you were to go to seminary today, brethren, and try to learn about God and want to accumulate as much knowledge as you can to increase your faith in God, guess what seminary is built on? Walking by sight. Walking by sight. And I'll prove that in just a second. Paul tells us a Christian is to walk by faith and not by sight. You can't see God. So you've got to believe that there is a God. And the stronger your faith is, you know there's a God. In fact, you're so convinced of God, it's more real than this board that's right here. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's there. Because I only know it by my natural senses. On a relative basis, if you have strong faith, everything of this world just fades out to that eternal presence. Listen, this is going to mold into dust. God isn't. He's an eternal and a far more exceeding thing, an object for our faith than anything in this world. Paul wants us to live by faith beyond all the things that go wrong in this imperfect, vain world. You know, the Hebrews saw some things. They saw their goods spoiled. Chapter 10. They saw their friends betraying them and turning them over to the authorities. They saw the love of many waxing cold and iniquity abounding. They saw all these things happening. Paul's lesson was, don't look at it. Ignore it. There's still a God in heaven. Nothing else has changed but foolish human beings. Put your faith in Him and let's not turn back from our profession of faith. Paul is encouraging them to ignore the things that they could see with their eyes 
and look at the things that they could not see with their eyes, and that was that God had not changed. As we look further in Hebrews chapter 11, we see in verse 3 the first example of faith, and that is that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. How do we know how this world and this universe came into existence? Why, of course, by reading the books written by Henry Morris and the other productions of Creation Research in California. Didn't you know that? Henry Morris couldn't do diddly to prove that this world was created out of nothing. You know why? There is no known means to man that can ever prove something when it's based on nothing. How would you apply scientific verification to something coming out of nothing? Faith is the evidence that God created everything out of nothing. Faith is the substance of the argument. It's the substance of the knowledge that God created everything out of nothing. Science is unable to ever prove that God created this universe. That's why Paul raises it here. Through faith we understand. They can argue all day long with the laws of thermodynamics and it will never prove that God created heaven and earth out of nothing. It will prove, they may be able to prove there is a law of thermodynamics, but it will never prove there is a God that created everything out of nothing by His Word. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. Now I know the King James Bible is an old Bible. It's 377 years old, and it doesn't know much about what's going to go on in 1988. And I speak as a big fool. But look at 1 Timothy 6.20. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. What was that? The gospel, the word of God was committed to Timothy. His mother and his grandmother had committed to him and Paul confirmed that commitment. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. There is, there is science. The word science is used in our world to describe things that Paul said was a false use of the word. It's an opposition. It's not scientific. Like the science of evolution. You know, just think about evolution for a minute, that all of this came into existence by a big bang theory and a multiplied millions and billions of years of progression. Science. How? There's no scientific evidence for that. It's a theory. They're exercising their faith in their folly. It's an opposition of science falsely so-called. We know that God created all things that have nothing by the Word of God that tells us that. We have evidence for the creation of the world out of nothing because God said it and we believe it. Faith is that gift of God that He gives to us 
by which we can recognize what God said is true. Now, the men of this world would say that this morning I am a vain babbler because I am calling on God's people and I believe something that I have no scientific evidence for. I believe it because God said it and I have it in a book. They would call me the vain babbler. They would say that's unreasonable simply to believe something without seeing it. How can you prove it? And I say, well, my faith is my evidence. And they'll call you an idiot and a fool. Well, let's look at what God, let's see what God thinks about their reasoning ability. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul asks the brethren to pray for us that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. Who is reasonable? The scientist or the man with faith? The scientist that believes in evolution or the man with faith? In God's judgment, the God of heaven and earth that created all things, he calls one group of men reasonable. Who are they? The ones that have faith. Who are unreasonable? Those that don't have faith. Those that operate by, I believe this board's here, I can see it, I can feel it, I can bang on it, I can try to eat it, and I can smell it sometimes. I believe it's there. That's an unreasonable man. If that's all he's got, it's a wicked man and unreasonable. Because all he's dealing with are what his senses can appreciate. And this universe is so far beyond sense. Human sense. It's the divine sense of faith by which we recognize things happening. This, this room is filled with angels. I mean, I can't punch them, taste them, smell them, or grab a hold of one, but they're here. Why? Because my faith recognizes things far beyond what I can see, touch, smell, feel, or hear. How does it apply to us as Christians? You go to seminary. And what's seminary based on? Walking by sight. Why do seminarians and universities pick, say, the New American Standard Version as the most reliable of the texts that we have of the Word of God? How do they come to that conclusion? By prayer and faith? Or by the science, falsely so-called, textual criticism? Textual criticism. They sit in a room and study Greek and Hebrew texts and play with them and they, they, it's neat to go over there and dig around in caves that shepherds have been in and dig through all the sheep dung and find a little bowl that's got some pieces of paper in it and go home and just worship that little thing and study it out called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so you leave one version, you come to another one because you found something you could see and you found something you could feel. And you found something you could put on display in the school's lobby. How do, why do you believe that that book you hold in your hands is the Word of God? You couldn't prove that. You couldn't prove that by evidence if you dedicated your entire life 
to trying to prove the King James Version is the Word of God by what's called scientific evidence. You could never do it. I can throw at you more problems, and I don't throw them all at you because I worry about your faith. There are problems with the King James Bible that the only way you can overcome them is by faith. You say, I get nervous holding a position where I'm forced to rely by faith. It's the only reasonable position if you believe God. Now, I love that doctrine. Let PhDs call me an idiot. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. God said I'm reasonable. God said I have evidence that would stand up in His court. Why? What is my evidence? He promised He'd preserve His Word, and I've seen the fruits that the King James Bible has had over the last 377 years, and it matches up with the fruits the Bible testifies of it. That's circular reasoning! Call it what you will. I call it faith. You can never convince a natural man of things spiritual and things eternal because things spiritual and things eternal are not seen. Things that are not seen cannot be verified by scientific proof. Things not verified by scientific proof are not accepted by natural men because natural men have not faith. Faith is necessary to prove the argument. You know, when some of you come to me with questions, and Brother Matthew did a few weeks ago about the Bible because he's dealing with wicked men that have not faith in regard to the Bible. They are men that base their confidence in a particular manuscript on textual criticism and manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. I base my confidence in the King James Version on faith evidence. And I just said to Matthew, why don't you go back to the man and ask him to prove the canonicity of the, of the uh, King James Bible or the New American Standard Bible. How do we get 66 books? How do we get 66 books when there were hundreds written? The apostles wrote more books. The, Paul tells us he wrote more books than what we have in our New Testament. How in the world do we ever get 66 books? Why don't we have 85 like the Catholics or 80 like the Catholics? Why don't we have the other hundred that are collected in books called the other writings? How do we get 66 books? What if, what if one's been left out and it's up to us to find it and stick it back in? What if two have been included that ought not to be there? Maybe it's the book of Hebrews that ought not to be there. Maybe I've just wasted the last 20 weeks of your life and mine. Well, I guess we better go call Dr. Stuart Custer and ask him and see if there's scientific evidence for the existence of the book of Hebrews and that it was written by an apostle. Where do you stop? You cannot prove you are by, you can't even prove why we have 66 books. Go read every book there is on canonicity and you'll come away more confused than you are right now. I'll guarantee it. If you have faith that the King James Bible is the Word of God, don't go study out the history of it very much. I'll guarantee you one thing if you do. You'll have more questions raised than you'll ever answer. Because what you're trying to do is walk by sight. If you go read books about the origin of the King James Bible, you will have more questions when you finish than answers. And if you want to get some of the questions before you even read, come and ask me. There's enough questions that have caused me to fall on my face before God and say, I'm going to make an assumption by faith. This is your word, and I don't care that I have problems in my mind about it. There are, I, could rip, I could rip your faith right now. 
unless you have strong confidence in God that this is his word regardless of anything I could say. Remember, that's a sense. Faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. Just a matter of time. I'm patiently waiting for it. Everything God's promised is going to get here, it's just a matter of time. It's the evidence of things not seen. I can't see something, how it happened. I can't see what manuscripts God had his word in in 1500, 1400, 1200, 900, 800. I don't know where the word of God was. Guess what? Don't care. I don't care. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. If God said it, and forget where that phrase came from. If God said it, don't worry about anything else. Be happy that God said it and believe it. Look at Romans chapter 4. Anybody who knows me on the subject of faith knows that I'd never preach on faith without going to Romans chapter 4. It is my favorite example, illustration of faith. As I am describing right now, you don't have evidence for a number of things. Where was the church of Jesus Christ in 1360 A.D.? Was there a church of Jesus Christ in 1360 A.D.? Where was it? What did they believe? Can't see it. Can't read about it. They're obliterated in history, and I thank God He obliterated them in history. Or do you know what we'd be spending all our time doing? Reading history books. And guess what? A whole lot of people do that. Landmark Baptists. Their hobby horse, the basis for their church, is the fact that they collect history books about Baptist churches and that they can try to establish a succession of Baptist churches from the apostles to the present day, and they can't do it. It's about as valid as the Catholics determining a string of popes from Peter down to the present day. You can prove anything you want with history books. This is a history book, though, that only proves one thing. It proves what God, that God is and that he said. He promised some things. This is the faith of Abraham. We're going to get to it next Sunday, but let's just read it briefly here in Romans chapter 4 because I want you to see how faith operates. Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Let me comment on each of these verses. I have made thee a father of many nations. That is a perfect tense verb in the active voice that means Abraham was already a father of many nations and in the present he was a father of many nations. God was able to say of Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. And that comes from Genesis chapter 17 and verse 5 where Abraham hadn't even had Isaac yet. Because the verse here goes on to say, God is able to call those things which be not as though they were. Abraham was not yet a father of many nations, scientifically considered. But from God's standpoint, Abraham was already a father of many nations because God quickeneth the dead. And that quickening, brethren, is not regeneration. That quickening is the making alive of Abraham's dead body and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, he made, he made alive Abraham and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Look at verse 18. Let me go back to verse 17. Why God's able to go right above and beyond the rules of English grammar. 
and use the perfect tense, which for your understanding is close to the past tense. It means an act in the present has already been perfected. That's where the word perfect comes from. At the present, it's already a, perf a present perfect tense means in the present it's an action already perfected. It occurred in the past, it's perfected here in the present of something not yet to happen. Abraham wasn't to have Isaac and become a father of many nations for some time. But God is already able to say, I've done it because of his omnipotent power. And Abraham was able to believe it by putting confidence in his omnipotent power. Verse 18, who against hope. Now there's the hope of men. Why, if Abraham would have looked at himself and looked at his wife, he wouldn't have had hope. There was no hope that Abraham and Sarah would ever have a child. I have no hope that my kids are going to turn out right. I just don't see any hope for the future of America. This church is beyond hope. Listen, I, I can believe all three of those statements sometimes. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. There was no hope of it naturally, but he believed in God anyway because God said, so shall thy seed be. That little statement of God, so shall thy seed be, was enough for Abraham to believe and hope, which means to patiently wait, that he would be the father of many nations. Verse 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. His body was dead. He was not able to reproduce children. He was a dead man, reproductively speaking. He could not father children. He considered not his own body. This is the point I'm trying to make, and this is why I'm at Romans chapter 4. Do you want confidence in the King James Bible? Don't consider manuscript evidence. Doesn't sound reasonable, you say. Faith is reasonable, and faith doesn't look at things you can see with your natural sight. He considered not his own body now dead. Now, when a person looks at a promise of God, such as God's promise to preserve his word, and that his word would not pass away but would endure forever, he looks at those promises, he looks at a Bible that bears the fruit of God's word, like the King James Bible, and then he wants to consider natural evidence to prove the existence of God's Word in the King James Bible, what would this verse say about his faith? The man who wants to consider manuscript evidence to prove that the King James Bible is the Word of God, the man who wants to spend a lot of his time reading Henry Morris on the creation of the world is a man this text says is weak in faith. If you need natural, visible evidence to confirm spiritual, supernatural, invisible things, you are a weak brother. Doesn't make sense, does it? How do you prove something invisible by something visible? Your faith is weak. Abraham wouldn't do it. I mean, Abraham knew, so shall I seed be. My body's dead. Sarah's dead. He didn't consider it. He didn't stop and think about, now this is impossible. <laughs> no way! No way can I have a kid. There's just no way that can happen. I mean, I'm dead. Sarah's dead. Didn't consider it. God said, so shall thy seed be. I'm waiting for it. 
Time's going to tell. I'm going to celebrate childbirth again. He was 100 years old. 19 goes on to say, and he didn't consider yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. What kind of people stagger? Weak faith. Weak faith. They stagger in unbelief. They stagger with lack of faith. God's promised something. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. They stagger, die, throw up their hands, despair. I don't have hope. My family's falling apart. Well, did God promise it or not? You say, well, that's a different kind of a promise. Show me that one, too. So shall thy seed be. Don't consider natural things. Believe God's promise. But I wouldn't believe I wouldn't have much confidence for those that don't put their faith in God because many of God's promises are conditional. And if you don't have faith, the promise will fail. It will be self-fulfilling in your life if you don't believe. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he, that is, God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham was fully persuaded he would have a son by Sarah. Fully persuaded? This man's sick. This man's unreasonable. This man is weird. <clears throat> how, did he, how was he fully persuaded? Simply, God is and God has promised and God has power to do it. Being fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able to perform. He didn't think about his body. He didn't think about Sarah's body. God promised it. God's able to do it. He, was, he, re, he realized full persuasion because faith is the evidence of things not seen. He could not see how he and Sarah were going to have a baby, but they did by faith. And that faith is the evidence of righteousness. Look at verse 22. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. What was imputed to him? Not righteousness. Faith was imputed to him for righteousness. The word imputed is a synonym for three other words in your New Testament. Counted, accounted, and reckoned. All four words are used. Faith was reckoned as evidence of Abraham's righteousness. It's men who believe like that in the Word of God that are able to accomplish great things and that God testifies they are righteous men. Look at Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus Christ is walking on the water. His disciples are in a ship. In verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Peter was an impulsive fellow, wanted to try this, walking on water. And he said, come. Jesus sometimes will put up with our des impulsive desires. And Jesus said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? 
This is a great little illustration again of faith. Why did you doubt, you little faith, weak faith? Why did you stagger for? What were you worried about? Jesus said to Peter, What happened to Peter? He looked. He looked. He looked at the waves and thought about them for just a moment. And that was all it took. Because if you rely on natural sight, you'll lose your faith and you'll begin to sink and you'll start to doubt and you'll become afraid. And brethren, I'm telling you, that is just as true about your King James Bible. It is just as true about the preservation of the church of Jesus Christ. Where did the church of Jesus Christ, where was it? Like I said, in 1360 A.D. It is by faith that we believe there was a church of Jesus Christ in 1360 A.D. How can you prove that the Bible is inspired? How can you prove that the Bible is inspired? By faith. He said it in the Bible. Well, now, wait a minute. Aren't you relying on this book that you're claiming to be inspired to prove inspiration? Isn't that circular reasoning? It's faith in what God is and what God has said that, yes, in a sense, it's circular reasoning, but everything in that circle matches up that you're reasoning from. And see, God gives that faith. It's not really a circle because it starts with a gift of God. And when we go out in this world and we, we put a Bible in our back pocket, you know, it's sharpened to a fine hone. You could shave with it. And we're going to go out and get ourselves a scalp. I mean, we're going to go out and get a scalp to come back in and dangle it before the congregation. Look at this Arminian I took care of this, this past week. And so we run up to someone who doesn't have faith. He's a wicked man. He's unreasonable. Would you tell me how you're going to reason with him? If you reason in the Word of God, he's going to think you're a fool. If you reason outside the Word of God, you're a fool. What do you do? You thank God you've got a few brothers and sisters in this rotten place that have faith. And you look for some men that have faith. And when a man has faith, you open the Word of God to him and tell him a few things about the King James Bible and a five-year-old child could do it. And he says, Amen, I believe that. And he throws away his false Bibles. I've seen it over and over. I've seen some of you have people throw away their false Bibles and you don't know diddly about manuscript evidence. How did it happen? You met a man with faith. God has to give it. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is important, brethren. It is worth the time we're spending on faith. I'll tell you right now what makes some men great and other men average and most men failures. A lack of faith. If you have confidence in God, what in the world will you be afraid of? A boisterous storm when you're standing on top of the waves? No problem. Don't worry. Be happy. No problem. I say that simply to make the point. Nothing to worry about. Be happy. What about God promising you a child and you're Abraham? You're a you're hundred years old. I mean, you, you look like a prune. Your wife, her womb is dead. She can't bear children. God regenerates you so powerfully that you have Isaac by Sarah. You marry another woman and have six more sons. By faith, he didn't even stagger at it. Men who stagger, what kind of races do they win? 
and it fits every single area of our lives. And I'll make it much more applicable this evening. What, let me make it right now, I'll, I'll elaborate on it this evening. What in the world can be reasonable about a woman denying herself and throwing herself at the feet of her husband and reverencing him and submitting all her desires to him and letting her, him rule over her and obeying him and submitting to him in everything. Does that sound reasonable? Well, it depends what ear is listening. The natural ear of this world would rebel, and you women have two of them. What woman will fall down at her husband's feet and admit that God has set him over her, that he is the image of God, and she is the glory of the man? She's not the glory of God. She is to be everything the man wants her to be. Her life is to be his life. She has no life of her own. She's to be thrown to him. What can drive a woman to do that? Faith. How does it operate? Faith. God said it. I have such strong confidence in the God of heaven that if God said it and I do it, I must, by so doing, achieve the greatest potential for a woman in this universe. And that if I hold back anything, which will be a, a lack of faith or weak faith, if I stagger at all in doing what God has said, I am cutting myself short. And that is what will happen. The woman who throws it all away and by an act of her mind, by strong confidence in God, God said, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands in everything. I'm going to do that fully, unconditionally, absolutely, from now until my husband dies or I die. The woman that does that does it by faith. There is no reasonable explanation for it that can ever compare to simple faith. And that is why when you get to 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that the holy women behaved like Sarah calling their husbands Lord because it's only a holy woman and a holy woman has plenty of faith that is able to do such a thing. Because in her natural reasoning, why, it's like crucifying herself. It's like suicide to give myself up totally to my husband from natural reasoning standpoint. But faith says, I can't lose for doing it. Because if God said I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it because God said to do it. God will take care of the rest. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 2, we read, For by it the elders obtained a good report. Those men that were strong in faith, that didn't stagger like Abraham, that didn't doubt like Peter, those were men that were achievers, high achievers. Because they believed in God, nothing could really get them down. Oh, once in a while they were cast down, but they were never destroyed. Because they looked beyond the things that they could see in this world, they looked to eternal things. They were the achievers. They got the good report cards. They're the winners in this world. And I appeal to all you men and women, are you winners? Any woman that doesn't submit fully to her husband's a loser. She's not exercising faith. Any man who gets discouraged because something goes wrong in his job, his family, his marriage, his finances, whatever, he's a loser because he doesn't have confidence in God. So what if the money's failing? God hasn't failed. 
Think about Paul. Everything fell apart. The very churches that God called him to establish were falling apart. But he didn't look at them. Light affliction, no problem. Too bad Job didn't do that. Job started well, didn't finish as well. Same situation, faith in God. The Hebrew elders resisted all sorts of different trials and tribulations which we're going to be studying as we go through this 11th chapter of Hebrews, and they won the victory by faith. Faith overcomes the world. There is nothing in this world that can deter a child of God. They can take the world. Faith overcomes the world. Faith is born of God. God gives His children something that can overcome all of the discouragement, disillusionment, vanity, and trouble of this world if they exercise faith. That faith is strong confidence that there is a God in heaven and what He has said is true. Whether it's the submission of wives or the training of children for fathers, everything God has said is true. And if you'll do it with absolute confidence that it works, without even regard or looking or thinking about holding back, you will be a winner. And by it you'll obtain a good report. And you'll obtain promises that other men will sit around and envy because they're never going to achieve them because they're losers. And it's not difficult, brethren. If God said it, you do it because you have faith in God. It's the evidence that this is the way that works. How do you know that absolute submission works, women? Because God said to do it, it must work. You, you, you ought to be fully persuaded that it works. You've got the evidence for it. Faith does basically five things in Hebrews chapter 11. The first thing faith does is it attempts great things for God. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 33. There are, there are fi five categories of ways in which faith operates. First of all, faith attempts great things for God. Verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms. There were men that went out and subdued kingdoms with far inferior numbers. For instance, who did I preach on recently and set him forth as the example of attempting great things for God when he said, give me this mountain? Caleb is an example of faith who subdued kingdoms. He subdued the kingdoms of the Anakim, the giants, the very ones that all Israel was afraid of. He took it with his family. How did he do it? By faith in God. If God said, this is your land, he didn't regard their size. You know, he had to look up to them when, if, he, if he ever met them. They were probably stretched out on the ground so that he had to look at them when he finally did see them. But he didn't regard their size. He didn't regard the fact that their cities were walled up to heaven. Oh, how terrible. Their cities had walls that were as high as heaven, the Israelites said. And we were in their sight and in our own sight as grasshoppers. What kind of faith did those men have? Well, the Bible says they had none. They entered not into Canaan because of unbelief. God killed them in the wilderness. Caleb said, give me this mountain. The men who have faith attempt great things for God. I mean, if God says that men ought to command their families to keep the way of the Lord, men aren't going to be timid about it. They're not going to hesitate at it. They're not going to stagger at it. They're going to jump in, take the task, and be a leader like God expects them to be. But most of the world are losers. 
I don't know if there's winners here or not. If I had my two balls here, I'd roll them down the aisle right now and say, what are you going to play, hardball or softball? What kind of a man are you going to be? What kind of a woman are you going to be? They attempt great things for God. I read over there in Daniel chapter 11, I believe it is, verse 32, where Daniel prophesied that after him would come some men that would know the Lord their God and would do exploits. Do exploits. I mean, God has some high achievers who accomplish great things. They're in the minority. There's few of them. But I, I exhort all of you to think about those men and be like them and those women and be like them. First of all, faith attempts great things for God. Second, faith works righteousness by doing exactly as God has commanded. That is next in that verse, verse 33. Wrought righteousness. Now, working righteousness and taking a kingdom is not the very same thing. That's why I've made five categories of faith. Faith attempts great things for God, and then faith works righteousness. That means faith does exactly what God said. Our example for this morning is verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, being dead, yet speaketh. There is no remission without the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, God shed blood for Adam and Eve, the mother and father of Cain and Abel. Immediately after Cain and Abel, or sometime thereafter, Noah offered burnt sacrifices before God. Abel brought of the fat of his flock and shed blood as an offering for God. Cain brought what was suitable and for him, and that was grain of the field. God accepted the offering of blood by Abel and rejected the offering of grain by Cain because Abel believed what God had said and taught them. And long before the law of Moses, God had taught that sacrifices involved blood. Abraham always offered sacrifices of blood. And Abel did the same thing. But he worked righteousness by doing exactly what God said. He did not compromise. Cain made it to the right place at the right time, and he was attempting to worship the right God, but he brought the wrong offering. Faith says, God said it, I believe it. That settles it, let's do it. Third, faith obtains promises by keeping the conditions for the reward. Look at verse 33 again. Faith, through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. A little different category here, where men do certain things in order to obtain promises that God has offered those that will, by faith, meet the conditions, such as train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. A man that has faith in that verse of Scripture will train his children believing They'll not depart from it when they are old, and they will obtain the promise. Fourth, faith understands mysteries by believing what God has said. That's verse 3. Through faith, we understand. Do you understand how the worlds were created? I do. I understand how the worlds were created. I love that word. I understand. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, if things that are seen were made of things that do appear, that means visible things, scientific evidence would apply. They could verify that it was true. But the fact is, the things that we see right here and now 
were created from nothing by the Word of God. Faith gives us the ability to understand mysteries. How was Jesus Christ raised from the dead? By the eternal Spirit of God? I understand it. There's three persons in the Godhead participating in one divine nature. I understand it, do you? You say, well, would you lay it out in a diagram for me? Why, you want to see it? Can't see God. I understand it without seeing it in a diagram. There are three persons in one divine nature. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Can't you understand that? You want to go beyond that? Write your own Bible. Start your own church. I understand everything God wants me to know about the Trinity. Right there, there's three persons in one God. <coughs> the minute we start drawing diagrams and talking about eggs, you know, there's a white, a yolk, and a shell. Oh. Ever heard a minister do that? You know, the Trinity's like an egg. It's one egg, but it's got a yolk, a white, and a shell. Now, that's pitiful. I've heard that before. It's enough to make you gag. What do you prefer, the yolk or the white? I mean, they're not the same. There's three that bear record in heaven, and the three are one. A yoke is not the white. Those three are not one. I mean, every illustration you can draw from things you can see will fall short of eternal things that cannot be seen. Try to make something that cannot be seen, seen or visible. Last of all, faith makes sacrifices of personal desires for God's glory. Faith will sacrifice personal desires. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses... When he was come to years, he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's grandson, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had recompense, un for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses could look beyond all the grandeur and all the rewards of being Pharaoh's grandson. And he could see the people of God. And he knew that by being part of the people of God, there was a reward waiting for him far greater than Egypt could offer. Faith causes men to sacrifice things for the Word of God. We have some men in this congregation that have sacrificed things for the Word of God. We had a brother stand up here last Sunday morning and testify of two of you men that sacrificed things for the Word of God that convinced him God is in us of a truth. That was glorious. You two men have been winners on one point. Let's make sure you're winners on the other four. Other of you that he didn't mention have been winners. Let's all be winners in all five categories. Faith does exploits. Faith works righteousness. Faith obtains promises. Faith understands mysteries. And faith sacrifices personal things. How do you know there's a heaven? By faith. How do you know you're regenerated? By faith. How did you get regenerated? By faith. How do we know about angels? By faith. Inspiration of Scripture, preservation of Scripture, it's all by faith. And brethren, faith is God's gift. And without God giving the gift, we'd be unable to have strong confidence in God and do these things. That's why when you meet with men, you're going to be discouraged unless you recognize that unless God gives that faith 
you are working with an unreasonable person. Verse 1, faith is defined. Verse 2, the encouragement is given that we might obtain a good report because the elders obtained a good report. Verse 3, faith understands mysteries of things we cannot figure out by scientific or natural reasoning. Verse 4, Abel is an illustration of faith working righteousness. Abel did exactly what God said. God accepted him. Cain's gift was evil because it was not the gift God required. Cain was rejected. The difference was faith. Cain had some faith in God. I mean, he did show up. He did bring an offering. But it was not accepted because he didn't have full faith. You don't modify God's Word. Look at Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12. Let me show you about the lack of faith in compromising what God said. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 12. This is Moses after he smote a rock with his rod and he should have spoken to it. Verse 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not. What does that say about Moses' faith in this action? He didn't have faith. He was weak in faith because faith works righteousness. Faith does what God said. Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Faith does exactly what God said and does not compromise. Cain compromised. Cain was rejected. Moses compromised. Moses was rejected. Abel did what God said. Abel was accepted even though he died an early death. Abel went to be with God. Listen, the devils have faith, brethren. The devils believe there's one God. That's faith. See, that faith, what is faith? Faith believes that God is, and God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The devils believe the first half of that. But true faith works righteousness and does exactly what God said. Abel gives us that illustration. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, had a testimony for his whole life. This man pleased God. And when he was 365 years old, God just took him to heaven. Didn't die a natural death. But by faith, throughout his life, Enoch always made the decision that God is there in heaven. God has said it. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Exactly what God said. He attempted great things for God. He believed mysteries that God had revealed to him. He worked righteousness. He obtained promises. And he sacrificed personal desires for the God of heaven. And he was taken home early because God said of him, He pleases me. And he did that all by faith. The essential element of the Christian life is simply believing God is there and what God has said is true. And operating as a result of it. Faith without works is dead. Faith always operates because of those two assumptions that God is and that God has spoken and promises rewards to those that seek Him. Verse 6 goes on to describe Enoch's situation. Now notice in verse 5, 
Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. His tombstone read, he pleased God. Did he have a tombstone? He wasn't buried. Where did they leave anything about Enoch? We don't know what the family did. He had this testimony. He pleased God and he just disappeared into heaven. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. A life that pleases God has to be a life of faith. Everything you do must be based on faith. It doesn't matter what you do. Do you do it always because there's a God in heaven? He's told you to do it and you know that he's watching you do it. For instance, the Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin. How can driving a plow across the field be sin? Because it's not done with faith. With faith, a man can drive a plow across the field and the act will please God. You can cut your grass and please God. You cut your grass without faith in God, it's a sin. And it's just mounting to your balance. It's just adding to your balance. The Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Everything you do must be coupled with strong confidence in God that you are doing the right thing or it becomes sin. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith, Noah got that message from God, I'm going to destroy the world and all that has the, light, the breath of life in it, and you've got a hundred years to build me an ark. And he was rejected by his generation. He was a preacher of righteousness and he preached, but he was rejected by his generation. They despised him and derided him. But by faith, he went ahead and did it. He attempted great things for God. He kept God's promises. And there was a flood. And there were only eight that were kept dry. The rest drowned in the flood. By faith, a man will do what God said regardless of the rest of the world saying he's crazy. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 51. Psalm 119 verse 51 tells us, The proud have had me greatly in derision. The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law. Noah built that ark exactly the way God told him to build it. It was built out of gopher wood. It was built by certain dimensions. And it accommodated all the animals, two by two, that went into the ark. And he saved his household, eight souls alive, through that flood. The point I want you to see is verse 51. The proud have had me greatly in derision. Yet have I not declined from thy law. A winner, man or woman, is a person that will not be intimidated nor deterred nor decline nor stagger because people say they're crazy or reject them or deride them. The proud had me greatly in derision. Didn't phase the psalmist. Women, you submit, you'll be made fun of. I'm just going to use some things that are close to home right now. You submit... Other women, maybe even this congregation, will be bold and wicked enough to say, well, I'd never do that for my husband. Or make you feel ashamed for you submitting to your husband fully the way the Bible describes. 
So what? Ignore them. And if they're in this congregation, rebuke them to their faces. And do what the Bible teaches and don't decline from it, even though they might have you greatly in derision. Don't decline from God. Noah did not do that. Noah was ridiculed. You know how much he would have been ridiculed, preaching righteousness in a coming flood. For a hundred years it didn't come. And Second Peter chapter 3 tells us they mocked in those days like they mocked, that they're going to mock in this day because Jesus Christ hasn't come yet. But he still built that ark. Over a hundred year time period, his faith, the confidence in God, he moved with fear. Faith provokes men to righteousness, verse 4. Faith provokes men to pleasing God, verse 5. And faith provokes men to fear God, verse 7. And all three of those men obtained a good report card. God testified of them. They were righteous men. They were winners. They were achievers. They were elders of the Hebrews that Paul uses here to provoke them. And I use this morning to provoke you. The great men in this congregation are the men that will ignore the natural concerns of this wife, the bickerings, ravings, naggings, poutings of wives, the rebellion, the squawking, the complaining, the murmuring of children, the weakness of other brethren, and will stand firm for what God has said and disregard all else. Those men will be winners. Those men will obtain a good report. Those men Paul will have pleasure in. If you draw back from one commandment of God, you'll be like Cain. You'll be like Moses. You'll be rejected by God. If God pull, draws the line on that one thing with you. May God bless us all to be faithful. The Bible tells us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray that some faith has come this morning.